It's a big world, and survival depends on the quality of your decisions. You need a diverse viewpoint to see all the opportunities around you. Now is the time, and this is the place. This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. We're telling you this so you can make your own independent evaluation of these opportunities. Also, as with most leading-edge opportunities, if you can't afford to potentially lose your investment, don't risk it. We make no personal recommendations about any sponsor on this program. We encourage you to do your own research. Yes, we do as much due diligence as possible, but nothing is completely predictable in this big world. Here's an idea. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit us at ellismartinreport.com. And now, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Don Mosier, the president of Desert Mountain Energy Corporation, trading as DME on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as DMEHF. Desert Mountain Energy is a forward-looking resource company actively engaged in the exploration and development of helium and rare earth gas properties in the U.S. Southwest, with its executive offices in Vancouver, Canada. Currently, the company holds over 85,000 acres of land in Arizona, the world's best address for helium. Don, welcome back to the program. How are you? Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It's been a while since we've chatted, and a lot has happened with Desert Mountain Energy. I would like to begin with discussing that Desert Mountain Energy has the world's first solar-powered helium processing facility in the world under construction, using, in addition to solar energy, a backup of hydrogen. Our location, the project that we've got, is 18 miles from the nearest power grid, and we're at an elevation of about 5,300 feet above sea level with over 320 days a year of high radiation exposure out in the desert. So it made a lot of sense to adapt solar technology to power the unit. It fixes our electrical costs to start with. Payback on it's gonna be fairly quick. You've seen the fluctuation in power prices. Best example I can give you is what happened that winter down in Texas where prices went up a thousand percent. If we put in our solar facility, it fixes our costs. Then the fact that we found the first pure hydrogen field in North America, I'd like to say the world, I don't know if I'm confident enough to do that, but we feel that this hydrogen field that we found within the Macaulay helium field has absolutely no sulfur in the system. Therefore, it's a pure form of hydrogen. And we, of course, would like to take advantage of that to back up the solar power. So it's going to mean, from an environmental standpoint, basically zero carbon emissions. Our facility, once it's operating properly, should emit less carbon dioxide than a six-cylinder car running for a week in a city in an entire year. And right now we're seeing Genron assembling the units. They're being delivered in four 40-foot storage containers, so I'll refer to them as modular housing units. But basically Genron's assembling the most complicated components right now. We expect to take delivery on these housing units sometime in July. We'll be taking delivery on the solar panels. In June, we're starting to put the fencing up around the site. We're in progress here of starting to get this facility up and running and being optimized through the third quarter. And we hope to have full optimized production either at the end of Q3 or early in Q4 and take advantage of these current helium prices, which have just skyrocketed. So your cost should remain fixed 
almost indefinitely with regard to energy for this production facility. That's really not going to change that much over time, is it? No. So we felt our processing and handling costs would come in at about 18 to $20 an MCF. If you compare it to a natural gas facility, a natural gas, they run 140 to $180 just in processing and handling. The helium price itself over the last three months has gone from and I'm going to quote a crude price, which is 90 to 95% pure helium. It's gone from 300 to over $1,000. And obviously, the companies doing offtakes and signing five-year contracts have missed that lift in helium prices. So we feel that by the time we produce the helium, finishing it to 99.99995 helium, we'll be getting north of $2,500 in MCF. Our margins should be north of 90% on our sales. We've got a very close audience or a base of customers around Phoenix. I mean, we've identified 40 end users in and around Phoenix. So they're within a three-hour drive to our plant and they're all desperate for helium right now. The global shortage is 18%. They're shutting down research laboratories. I saw the University of Nebraska cancel their traditional releasing a whack of red helium balloons to celebrate the first touchdown of the year. But balloons are such a waste of helium to start with, not even talking about the pollution of the plastic balloons when they do fall back to earth. The critical uses of helium are the MRIs and the research laboratories and the data centers and those types of applications that this modern society cannot possibly survive without. You're going to lose your cloud-based technology if you can't cool the supercomputers, for example. Well, there's certainly a, a great demand for helium, as you mentioned, but I'd like to talk about hydrogen. When I first started covering this story last year, Desert Mountain Energy, it was pretty much a helium story, but now you're also a hydrogen story, and there is a big use coming for hydrogen as it becomes more economic for hydrogen fuel cells to be produced for automobiles. Yeah, it was interesting. I was actually in my first hydrogen car in Zurich about a week and a half ago. The taxi was hydrogen. It was a Hyundai brand, and I've never seen a hydrogen car before. So, you know, the Europeans are a little bit ahead of North America. More government sponsorship, if you want to call it that, to move in that direction. But for us, it's exciting to find these fields and now the challenge is going to be how do we monetize it? I think over the next two to three years, you'll see more and more hydrogen usage, more fuel cells used on long haul vehicles. And I think we'll be able to capitalize on it. Right now, it's sitting in the ground in a natural storage unit, if you want to look at it that way. And we've got time to decide how we can take advantage of that. I think last time we spoke, you had four wells. Now we're up to seven, I believe. Let's talk about the last three wells and what's coming along and how that increases the supply of helium or what you can deliver to offtake users. Yeah, the first four wells that we drilled were all wildcats. They were drilled in three different fields. And well number three, we still haven't sampled it. It ran into some court challenges that we've now resolved. But in September of 2021, we announced a successful wildcat, which was the call helium field well number four and we saw the market sell off 200 million dollars in market cap in about two hours that day i think we communicated the fact very poorly that it was a brand new helium field discovery i think the market was really focused on grade the grade on that helium was 1.137 percent as opposed to our previous two wells that were north of four and seven percent but that well not only taught us a lot 
but allowed us to make the decision on putting that field into production first. And the three wells that we drilled in January and February, five, six, and seven, came in at 3.511%. So that's going to lift the average gas percentage going through there well above 3%. We're also going to haul some gas over from well number two, it's north of 4%. It's going to make this very, very profitable. We can make money at 0.3% would be just fine. So these grades are north 10 times that. The gas is very clean. The results of those three wells came in at about 96.2% nitrogen, 3.511% helium, and 0.0201 carbon dioxide which is so traced that it doesn't even fall within EPA guidelines. And what we're doing with the Macaulay Helium Processing Facility is it's not a refinery. We are simply separating elements out of a gas mix coming out of the ground under national pressures. So the simpler the gas mix it is, the easier it is to isolate the helium and purify it and sell it directly to end users. So what we're building here is not especially gas supplier, but you're actually looking at a company that explores, drills their own wells, produces their own well, processes their own gas and sells directly to end users as a vertically integrated primary helium producer. I don't think anybody else out there can claim that. And you're going to be generating revenue Q3, the end of Q3, Q4 this year. Don, you and I have been in the mining business for well over 20 years. This is really a unique situation here where you've had this property for a while, but it's going from A to Z, basically, from just discovery and drilling into production within a very short time compared to many, many, many other companies in the sector. It's been a bit of a dream ride, quite frankly, because when Rob and me took over management, in the middle of August of 2020, the company had 55 million shares out, all issued under 35 cents Canadian, $600,000 in the bank. And Rob had drilled two Wildcat wells that were sitting out in the desert while the cement achieves structural integrity. And then when we sampled the wells, we had the plus four and plus seven percent results and managed to raise $13 million at $160 Canadian with a $2 warrant than when we turned around and forced in March of 2021. So that was a $29 million finance. What we've actually accomplished here, and it's mostly Rob Rolfing, it's his concept, his model, his drilling skills, all that package is Rob, is taking this company from literally grassroots exploration to full production in approximately 26 months. You're looking to go from greenfield to full production in a mining company traditionally in five to 10 years. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I'm looking at really good mining projects that have been in the exploration and development stage 20 years. And you know, with the current commodity prices and the inflation we're seeing out there, you would think we'd see the commodity sectors starting to ramp up. I know you're seeing it in the oil and gas sector, and the big producers are getting some love, but none of the exploration plays out there that I'm aware of are catching any investor interest at the moment. It's inevitably got to happen. And I mean, we are feeling the effects of inflation within our company. We have combated inflation all the way along with a strong treasury. We've been very fortunate with that. What that's allowed Rob to do is pre-order casing 
pre-order prepaid drilling costs, those types of things to stay ahead. What we've been looking at, and we bought a trucking fleet because of it, is our trucking costs escalated in 18 months from moving the rig on to well number one for $25,400 to when we downrigged off well seven, it was $173,000 for the same kind of a move. You're just moving a rig. So we went out and bought a fleet because we had the money in the treasury to do it. And we got it out of a divorce settlement. So we've now got these trucks at our disposal. But in addition to that, we're contracting them out currently. And we are generating a profit off our trucking fleet. We've got a second stream of revenue that we never anticipated we were going to have. These trucks are contracted out for the next 24 months. That is just brilliant management as far as I'm concerned. And you don't see a lot of that in any sector, actually. Don, what can we see in the next six months for Desert Mountain Energy? I think what you're going to see us continue to do is more drilling. We've got a couple more Wildcats planned, so we hope to bring on a fourth, maybe fifth helium field in addition to the three that we already have. Take delivery and complete assembly on the Macaulay Helium Processing Facility and put that into production and start to generate revenue. I think with that, you can look forward to us bringing more processing facilities online on different fields around Arizona and potentially looking at some opportunities outside the state of Arizona. There's a lot of opportunities in places like Kansas and Colorado. Oh, I wasn't aware, but I do know that your CEO, Rob Rolfing, has a lot of experience in that area, in that particular domain. But you have a lot of ground in Arizona. We have a lot of ground in Arizona, and and we're not going to lose our focus on it. But we're continuing to build the team. Tomorrow, we're bringing on a, a new VP of geology. When Rob and myself took over management, it was Rob Rolfing and Don Mosier, and all I do is deal with the capital market. Rob Rolfing dealt with everything else. He dealt with the land leases, acquiring land, surface right, pre-ordering all the casing and all the rest of the components necessary to drill, managing the drill rig. He was on the drill rig overseeing the drilling on it. And now we've got Jessica Davies as VP of land. We've got Eric Witt as drilling operations manager. We got James Hay as VP of engineering. We're bringing on Marta, who's very qualified as VP of geology. So he's actually built a team around him now. And that's going to allow Rob not to have to focus so solely on Arizona. He can delegate those jobs to his team. And to me, that's what a good CEO does. He hires people that he can trust, delegates responsibilities, oversees everything, and kind of stays out of their way and goes and looks for other opportunities to allow the company to continue to grow. Why should potential investors new to the space that are typically generalists take a look at Desert Mountain Energy, in your opinion, noting that you are biased as the president of the company? Well, to start with, if you take a look at, you know, all the chip manufacturers and space launches and fiber optic manufacturers, all those multi-billion dollar companies operating out there, there's one small component that they need to buy that they can't operate their businesses without, and that is helium. And they don't really care about the price of helium as a small component in their overall business, knowing they need to have it. I would say if you're going to look at something that's going to combat inflation that you can have in your portfolio, you want to own a primary helium producer. And quite frankly, I can't give you another one out there. You can go buy the specialty gas suppliers, go buy Air Liquid, go buy Matheson if you want that. But at the end of the day, 
they depend on the offtakes from natural gas producers to get their hands on that 90 to 95% pure helium and, and upgrade it and sell it to the end users. We're cutting everybody out. We're going from start to finish and we will be the only company of its like that I am aware of in the world right now. Don, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. I look forward to a conversation in the very near future. Sounds good. I've been speaking with Don Mosier, the president of Desert Mountain Energy Corporation, trading as DME on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as DMEHF. Learn more about the company by visiting their website, desertmountainenergy.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. In this segment of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis speaks with Scott Petzl, president of Metallic Minerals, trading as MMNGF in the U.S. on the OTCQB. Metallic Minerals is a growth stage exploration company focused on the acquisition and development of high-grade silver and gold projects within underexplored districts proven to produce top-tier assets. Their core Kino Silver project is located in the historic Kino Hill Silver District of Canada's Yukon Territory, a region which has produced over 200 million ounces of silver and currently hosts one of the world's highest grade silver resources. Metallic's La Plata Silver Gold Copper Project is located in the high grade La Plata district of the prolific Colorado Mineral Belt. Scott, welcome back to the program. I had a chance to visit with you in the Yukon not too long ago. It's a growing area. There's acquisitions happening all the time, and there was an acquisition that happened right next door to your project with Hecla acquiring the Alexco project at Kino Hill. I think it's really exciting. You do first have to stop and congratulate Alexco really on their exploration success over the last 10 to 12 years. They were able to start with really nothing and ended up with over 120 million ounces of reserves and resources on the books. And to be able to build a mine and initiate production on a number of these targets is, is really a great success story. Hecla now in acquiring Alexco really appreciates what the Kino Silver District represents and the opportunity that it presents them already as the U.S.'s largest primary silver producer and the world's third largest producer. When they add the Kino Silver Project to their books, they'll be really North America's largest primary silver producer, both the largest in Canada and the largest in the U.S. And that is substantial. And when you think about it from the standpoint of a metallic minerals shareholder, this is really good opportunity for us because Hecklid brings a very deep bench, a lot of experience in developing underground narrow vein silver deposits, a lot of depth in their bank support and financing abilities. And this is going to really provide a bit more exposure to the district across the silver space in the sense that uh, they really are a global producer. And uh, we like the opportunity that presents us both from anything, a custom milling operation or acquisition of resources that we've defined over the years here that may be of interest to them in their mining scenario. So I walked that ground probably five or six years ago, and it is literally right next door to Alexco, your Kino Hill project. And the geology has to be exactly the same. It is. And you're right. I mean, we own the second largest land position in the district. The district itself is 35 kilometers long. We've essentially got most of the eastern half of the district and some inholdings within the land that Alexco currently holds and a number of advanced targets with really what we're seeing is geology is consistent across that district. We're able 
able to do our exploration work at our targets like Caribou and Formo and find very similar types of high-grade narrow vein lead zinc silver veins that are running over a thousand grams per ton and much higher in some cases. These opportunities are really expanded with our knowledge of exploration growing in the district where we've been able to identify new styles of mineralization in the district. So what is the plan going forward for that particular project in the Yukon? Our process right now, we've just initiated a field program. We'll be doing drilling on our advanced stage projects at both the Fox showing in East Keno, the Caribou target, and the Formo target, which is in West Keno, and advancing those towards resource definition. So we're looking at drilling somewhere around the order of about 4,000 meters. We're also doing geophysics and advancing other targets from initial delineation or discovery stage as recent discoveries through additional drilling and other field-supported activities. You've got another project that is significant. It's in Colorado, La Plata. Yes. La Plata, it's a fantastic find for us, a project we acquired in 2019. It's a copper porphyry deposit with accessory silver and gold. In fact, our resource announced in April of this year put us near a billion pounds of copper equivalent onto the market with 15 million ounces of silver along with that. And it is literally still very early stages in our understanding of the district. We've been able to kind of consolidate two thirds of the district. Over the last three years, we've applied a lot of early stage exploration and have identified 16 new potential porphyry centers of mineralization that are untested. We are undergoing geophysical surveys right now to refine those targets and really look to be drilling about 4,000 meters at La Plata this year, both in our resource expansion on the Allard Porphyry system, but also to test these new targets that we've identified. If you like silver and if you like copper, you have to like metallic minerals. Tell us about the share structure of the company. We've just done a $4 million financing here recently, mostly flow-through funding that will help support us going forward. As of the last quarterly report, in addition to the financing, we've got about $7 million in the bank. And that supports our exploration through this year. We've got 147 million shares outstanding. We've got some very strong shareholders in Eric Sprott, Crestcat, US Global to help round us out. And uh, a lot of support from our shareholders that see potential value in this company with all the activities that we've got moving forward and great assets that we've got to manage as well. We've been speaking with Scott Petzl, president of Metallic Minerals, trading as MMNGF in the U.S. on the OTCQB. For more information, go to the company's website, metallic-minerals.com. That's metallic-minerals.com. This is the Ellis Martin Report. Join Ellis now for a conversation with Anil Varach, the Executive Vice President and Director of Step Gold, trading in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STPGF. Step Gold is Mongolia's premier precious metals company and is projected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold from the current operational oxide zone of the ATO gold mine this year in 2022 and in 2023. The company also completed a feasibility study into expansion of the ATO gold mine to approximately 100,000 ounces of gold per annum from the development of underlying fresh 
Fresh Rock Ores. Anil, give us an overview of exploration developer and producer Step Gold in Mongolia. Uh, myself, I'm a co-founder of, of Step Gold. We found the company towards the end of 2016 as a private company with the aspirations of building Mongolia's premier precious metals company. You know, Mongolia is, say, one of the most resource-rich countries in the world, underexplored, misunderstood, luckily landlocked between two superpowers called Russia and China. It is home to world-class mines, discoveries, the most prominent being Rio Tinto's Oyotogo mine. That's one of the biggest copper mines ever discovered and in production today. So certainly it's a jurisdiction that we have a lot of advantage in terms of how resource-rich it is, but also where our team has actually already built and sold the company about a decade ago. And that was a, you know, a $20 million idea. IPO in 2010 and sold for half a billion cash in 2011. We know how to navigate the country and we do things properly. We are a local company. We CEO is Mongolian, half our border Mongolian, and 99% of our team, which is now 250 full-time employees, are Mongolian. And that's how you should do business in any jurisdiction, not just Mongolia. The more local you are, the more jobs and direct benefits you can create, the more benefit you can create for the locals and also for our shareholders. Mongolia is a jurisdiction that is friendly to everyone, isn't it? It is. It's a functional democracy, obviously gained independence in the early 90s as a former Soviet satellite country. Every four years has parliamentary elections and functioning well. You have a government that's very supportive of the mining industry, which is the biggest driver of GDP, tax revenue, royalty revenue, and employment in countries. It's definitely uh, of importance in terms of the mining space. And we've demonstrated to the market and obviously to ourselves is the government has given us capital while we're building our first mine and now going to a second, the government has provided us capital to grow in country and not ask for more. Certainly a jurisdiction that doesn't have a lot of hurdles that may exist even in Western jurisdictions. We're very happy to be there and have this kind of first mover advantage in the precious metal space. Is the government the reason you were able to go into production so quickly? I wouldn't say just the government, you know, by any means. We bought a project in 2017 from Terra Gold. They already spent 30 million US on the project. They drilled it out. They put a feasibility study on both the phase one and phase two that we call phase one and phase two. I got that fully permitted and licensed with the government in Mongolia. So when we bought it, it was a shovel ready project. And what we did is take a phase approach, building the heat bleach first, get established as a producer, a taxpayer, a royalty player, an employer in the country, and then use that cash flow to build the phase two, which we're working on now. So the government has been very supportive, but I would say Sintero did a lot of heavy lifting. And um, we just kind of wrapped it up and did it the right way. How does it look with regard to the share structure of your company? We are an uh, explorer, developer, and a producer. So as a producer today, generating cash flow, free cash flow, we have just under 70 million shares outstanding. On a fully diluted basis, we'd be close to 92 million shares with about 44 million of cash. As a producer with over 2 million ounces and a track record in country. So very strong path forward. We have a tight capital structure that's supported by Mongolians. Board of management own close to 20% of the company as well. We've never sold a share. We've been public for four years and we continue to buy a market. We have uh, backing out of New York through family offices and a hedge fund called Elliott Asset Management. And then obviously in Canada, we have Eric Sprott as a, a very large investor that owns 11% of our company with Fidelity rounding it out at about 6%. So strong backers, long-term 
visionaries like us and a very tight structure, which allows us to really create value as we continue to produce and grow. Ellis has been speaking with Anil Varach, the Executive Vice President and Director of Step Gold, trading in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STPGF. Find out more info on the company by going to their website, stepgold.com. That's S-T-E-P-P-E-Gold.com. Hear this interview again on our website, ellis.gold. Thoughts, comments, criticisms, accolades, praise, admonishments, pats on the back, all welcomed. Email us at martinreports at gmail.com and tell us how you really feel. This is the Ellis Martin Report. Join Ellis now for a conversation with Ali Haji, the CEO of Ion Energy, trading in the U.S. on the OTC as IONGF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as ION. Ion Energy is committed to exploring and developing Mongolia's lithium salars, which includes the Babaul and Ergenaron project. ION's flagship 81,000 hectare Babaul lithium brine project represents the largest and first lithium brine exploration license awarded in Mongolia. Ion Energy is well poised to be a key player in the clean energy revolution, positioned well to service the world's increased demand for lithium. Ali, welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to specifically discuss the importance of Mongolia and potential lithium production. Why is it so strategically important? You as a Canadian, why have you looked toward Mongolia as a place to do business? Well, Mongolia for us as a group, uh, you know, I've been involved with a group that's been doing business in Mongolia for the last 12 years. And when I visited Mongolia on the back of an acquisition of a gold asset from Centera Gold, ATO, that being now Step Gold, traded on the TSX under ticker SD Gold. When I was out there alongside my chairman, we looked at Mongolia in terms of its geological structure. We found that it was within an endoheric basin, which is indicative of lithium. And on the back of that data, we went back to the ministry. We looked at what data they may have had, what testing they may have had. And the Russians did some drilling in the 50s. The Mongolians and the Russians did some drilling in the 90s. And more importantly, in 2016, the University of Science and Technology drilled in that exact region to find anomalies of up to 811 ppm. And so we approached the government to set up Ion Energy. I'm a co-founder of the company, chief executive and director, and co-founded the company on the back of the prospect of finding lithium in country. And so we approached the government and said, uh, let, let's put up a license for tender. They ultimately did. We were awarded it out of five parties that went after it. And that was Bob Iol, our flagship license. So Mongolia to us, given its proximity to China, China being the largest consumer of lithium on the planet today, just made sense to build a company that was a lithium explorer that would allow us to essentially fuel the largest consumer on the planet. And that's how Ion Energy was born. So nobody could really touch the project. They'd taken a look at it. The Russians had looked at it and a few other entities had a close look at it, but nothing was done with this potentially huge lithium brine area. And and you've got it because you were doing business as Step Gold at the time, correct? That's correct. So we looked at the area based on the endoheric nature of the geology. We looked at Babayol. Babayol was our flagship. We went public on that asset. We found anomalies, as I mentioned, 1502 BPM called the White Wolf Prospect. We announced in December 2021. And then we acquired, rather prior to that, we acquired a license called Urgachnaren. And Urgachnaren is an endoheric basin in Dorngovi province, very similar to what you would find in the Atacama. Myself and my technical team, including Dr. Mark King, who was the qualified person at Neolithium when that exited Zijin for $960 million back in Q4 of last year, was alongside myself as well as Don Haynes. Don Haynes is an individual that's industry recognized as 
an expert in lithium, not only hard rock, but also bright. So we went out there, we saw the exploration program take place. We kickstarted a TEM program on our Ogaknar, very recently acquired asset, now controlled 110,000 hectares. And that's important to us because, you know, Ellis, if, if you look at the rest of the world, where does lithium lie? In LATAM, in Australia. Where is the expertise? In LATAM, in Australia. As first movers in Mongolia, we were the very first individuals to look for lithium in Mongolia. So would we spend shareholder dollars on a program that wasn't vetted by industry experts? Absolutely not. So we slow rolled our exploration program. In August 2020, we went public. We went public on the remit that this geology is very similar to what you might find elsewhere. And so on the back of that, we had an exploration program that allowed us to slow roll and literally scratch the surface above IO. Once we were done that and we acquired Rugat Naran and the global sort of travel market opened up again and we were able to go wherever we needed with the experts we needed. But the important aspect here is that we reserved and preserved shareholder capital on the basis of geology to understand where lithium may lie. When we had access to country, we took the foremost industry experts to that country. And the exploration programs we've conducted alongside the TEM programs, and now the drilling programs and surface sampling programs, show us that Urgat Naran is indeed what could be considered a world-class asset. You've got some highly encouraging geophysical results from the Urgat Naran Lithium Brine Project that just came out about a week ago or so. Let's talk about that. Yes, extremely important. I think when you look at brine projects around the world, on average, if you were dealing with a seasoned hydrogeologist or one that understood aquifers, they would continually tell you to look for this sort of magical number. That magical number is 0.5 ohm. We did eight lines across 92 kilometers on the asset, and our readings were at 0.2 ohm on every line. We've now seen a very specific hydrogeological structure that exists below surface. And that's important for our our listeners because, as I mentioned, 0.5 ohm is generally the cutoff. 0.2 being seen on every single line we've done across this asset that is now an 18,000 hectare basin. It's very important for us, our listeners, our viewers, and those that are seasoned in the battery metal space. How are your projects more competitive than, let's say, South America, Chile, Argentina, or even the Clayton Valley? Fantastic question. I think one must consider the fact that we are a mere kilometer or kilometers, if you will, from the Chinese border. The Qinghai brines in China consist of clay-laden evaporites that are ultimately being brought to production. And these assets are being brought to production on the basis of the fact that labor is quite cheap and the largest consumer on the planet, as I mentioned before, is China. China consumes 53% of the world's lithium, produces 73% of the world's batteries, if not 80, and that number is yet uh, to be determined. And our proximity to that market, where Clayton Valley, for instance, is in a region where you have a number of US enterprises and you know, not to fault any of them, but they are quite talented and they have the, the best minds on the planet, have yet to bring these assets to production. Whereas you find in Asia, a number of individual companies, a number of individual entrepreneurs have found the ability to extract lithium to bring these assets to production where you have a clay content. Now, Pabayol being clay derivative or evaporite derivative is one that continues to be one that us as a company needs to explore and, and advance and understand further. Urgat Naran, on the other hand, being a brine asset with low potassium, magnesium, sodium, calcium, and boron ratios, is an asset with an aquifer that could rival, potentially, things that we see across the globe. So, you know, call it neolithium, so to speak. You know, should we say that? Should we not? It's an asset that is uh, about a 17,000 hectare basin. We have a 19,000 hectare basin with surface samples of 918 milligrams per liter. Our impurities in that 
same remit are significantly lower. So what you have the potential to do here is build a DLE plant. And the northern Chinese province of outer Mongolia or inner Mongolia, depending on which way the sun rises, <laughs> has the ability and the technology to essentially bring these assets to production. So our view is that we've always gone out to market to acquire lithium-bearing licenses in Mongolia. On the back of that promise, we will look to define a resource and ultimately bring in a strategic partner that will allow us to exit. You mentioned, Ellis, at the onset about the Koreans, the Japanese, and everybody else in that region. You look at the Koreans with Samsung, you know, massive behemoth that builds a number of different technological aspects and Panasonic in Japan, Sony as well. Sony was one of the first companies to build the NMC battery. So batteries that existed within rechargeable phones and what have you. And then you have Panasonic and Panasonic today supplies Tesla with the vast majority of the batteries that they need that are not LFP lithium ferrophosphate. Lithium ferrophosphate, the technology in itself, is one that exists primarily in the gigafactories that exist in Asia. Now, one would consider that that might be an Asian-centric market, but think of it this way. Scandinavia is now importing Model Ys from Tesla that are manufactured in China. Those are LFE batteries. They're being consumed in Scandinavia as LFE batteries. LFE batteries are lithium ferrophosphate. They don't use nickel. They don't, well, they use a fair bit of nickel, but they don't use cobalt at all. So we're, we're moving away from the vast majority of the contentious metals that are being mined for the clean, green energy revolution. You think we're moving away from nickel and cobalt? Nickel, not so much, but cobalt, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, the world has looked at where the cobalt deposits exist and cobalt can be quite uh, contentious as a result of not only the environmental impact, but also the uh, social impact. If you look at the Congo, for instance, you have a number of artisanal miners that could be, you know, three, four years old, all the way up to 76 years old, pulling out the cobalt and causing areas of global conflict, if you will. So cobalt is something, in my view, that might be going away. Yes, LFP batteries have a bit of a disadvantage when it comes to colder climate, but we are working on ways to insulate that issue, literally speaking, and thus allowing those batteries to operate. Well, it's such a huge market as China and then South Korea and Indonesia, Malaysia, Japan. Let's talk about mine life with all the land that you have. Mine life is, is an interesting question. We are still early days and you have to consider that you know, Indonesia, for the vast majority of this sort of electric revolution stance, they've been involved as a result of BYD investing heavily to build a battery manufacturing facility in that country. Korea, as we know, in terms of Samsung, LG, and uh, Hyundai, Kia, and all the brands that you've heard about on this side of the world or otherwise, they continue to be pioneers. Uh, you know, I think uh, we'd be hard pressed to find individuals that don't have a Samsung television in their household. And what this tells you is that these individuals have pioneered that technology. Genesis, Hyundai, Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods drives a Genesis. Why does he do so? Because it's at the forefront of that technology. It's an electric vehicle that allows him the ability to do what he needs to do, but also live in a sort of semblance of luxury. You have to consider beyond that, that Panasonic, as I've mentioned over the course of this interview, has continually supplied Tesla with their cells required for those EVs. So that region of the world, Korea, Japan. Korea has built uh, highways in Mongolia. Japan has built the airport in Mongolia or 
some of the major airports in Mongolia. So this is a relationship that is very strong in Mongolia nationally being bordered by Russia and China has asked themselves or they have now instituted a policy that's called the third neighbor policy. So the Mongolian government would much rather you do business with anybody outside of Russia and China. And that allows us as a company to ensure that we have the ability to build strategic relationships with those outside of those two neighboring countries. So we're quite excited on the back of that. And I will reiterate, Alice, that the fact that we are fully funded in this market that is not very exciting for those that are looking to raise equity puts us in a position today that rivals most, in my opinion, and allows us to execute and perhaps weather the storm of this turbulence that we're seeing in the market today. Is it too early for you to entertain conversations with end users or are you a year away from that? At what point do you move forward in that arena? I wouldn't call it too early. I think we've had sufficient interest from strategics thus far. I think we have in Asia in particular, about 13 strategics that have NDAs with us that are now in the data room. We have uh, one European strategic and we have two LATAM strategics in our data room. And of course, the fact that we are fully funded, as we've just discussed, our goal today is to bring in those right strategic partners that allow us to advance our projects that ultimately brings them to production. So we're not looking for an equity injection because we don't require that. Should we receive that to give us the validation on the back of our exploration results and the data that we've collected thus far that tells us that we have something that is quite significant, that's the validation we require. And we allow those strategics to have a rofer to ultimately reinvest or acquire our organization in its entirety. So this is not one of these flavors flavor of the month, flavor of the year, flavor of the season, lithium plays that we would have seen two or three years ago. It's a real project. You actually really care about your shareholders. It's not some sort of lifestyle company. You are very successful with your sister company uh, producing gold mine with Step. You have real plans for this company and you're very, very careful with how you spend money and dilution. I couldn't agree more, Ellis, and thank you for pointing that out. I mean, you look at us as a sort of consortium, you know, Step Gold being one of those companies, Ion Energy, uh, we continue to invest our own capital. So as management and insiders at uh, Ion Energy, we control 25% of the company. We're, we've invested our own dollars at every raise, at every price over the course of the history of the company. I co-founded the company. I'm not in here to make a quick buck. I'm here to see my vision through, as are my board, my management team, and everybody else that's associated with the insiders. And we're now seeing you know, an ability for us on the back of our strong technical expertise to understand that this is uh, a region that we could see uh, potential value in and uh, we will continue to execute, but we will never, and I say this unequivocally, we will never accept a dollar from an investment council or a consortium that is less than our last raise. So no cheap money for Ion Energy? Absolutely not. Fantastic. Let's talk about the share structure of the company. We have 60 million shares outstanding today, 25 million in the hands of management insiders. We have about 8 to 9% in the hands of Mongolian investors that have physically put in money into the company. Beyond that, another 8% with family offices, Zurich, London, New York. We have funds that are involved with the company as well. We have Delbrook Capital out of Vancouver. They own close to 4% of the company. We have US Global, Ralph Aldis and the team out there. We have Steve Palmer, so Alpha North Asset Management. We have Greg Schofield out of Spartan Funds. We have a number of other institutional holders. So none of these institutional holders have sold or even looked to sell since we've dipped below 
going public price. And that happened around PLAC when, of course, what we're seeing today in the commodities market has occurred. So not a single institutional holder or a, an insider has looked to sell since uh, the, this sort of downturn has happened. And one thing that I will say with pride, Ellis, is the fact that I went public in August 2020. I did not dip below my IPO price until PDAC of this year, when the market started to turn. 22 months of trading above co-public price, I think, in my view, is something that might be considered commendable. And I've been taking a look at your chart lately, and overall, I don't think you see that kind of dangerous selling volatility that we've seen across the space. Ion looks fairly safe, and this is me saying it as a journalist, I'm no expert, but it hasn't received much of the pain that we've seen across the sector, and that's encouraging, even in recent weeks. Thank you for that. I agree with you. I think we are faring well relative to our peers. Our story is new. That being said, we're in a strong position given we are fully funded. And that's what our listeners and everybody else has to take back. We're funded. We're a team that's strong. We're a team that can execute. We've had exits, not only in the coal space, gold space, and multiple other spaces, including copper. So stay tuned and uh, thank you for listening. Ali, it's been a great pleasure having you on the program today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ellis. Ellis has been speaking with Ali Haji, CEO of Ion Energy, trading in the U.S. on the OTC as IONGF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as ION. Learn more. Head to the company's website, ionenergy.ca. That's ionenergy.ca. This is the Ellis Martin Report. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment of the Ellis Martin Report, I speak with Dr. Paul Wessels, the president and CEO of Western Copper and Gold Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange and the Toronto Stock Exchange as WRN. Western Copper and Gold Corporation is developing the Casino Project, Canada's premier copper gold mine in the Yukon Territory, and one of the most economic greenfield copper gold mining projects in the world. The Casino Project hosts approximately 7.6 billion pounds of copper, as well as 14.5 million ounces of gold, one of the largest projects of its kind, again held by a junior mining company in the world. Major mining operator Rio Tinto Canada made a $25.6 million strategic investment to advance the company's Casino Project in the Yukon just last year. Paul, welcome back to the program. Nice to visit with you today. It's great to be here, Alice. I had the great pleasure of visiting the casino project in the Yukon, and you were a great host, and I got to see the operation, and you really don't know the entirety of it until you're there. It was very, very impressive. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you know, it was great to have you up again, Alice. It was a number of years ago that you were up. Happy to have you back up there. One of the things that impressed me the most, and it sort of stand out, I don't know that anyone's really talking about this right now, but we spent a good 15, 20 minutes of the tour of the casino project looking at this huge mega scanner. And by scanner, I mean something you would scan rocks with anything with, like a huge photo scanner. And it's in there courtesy of you and Rio Tinto. Let's talk about why that piece of equipment exists. You could probably lay a human down there and it would like detail every little inch of your body. It's quite a sized unit. And I think you probably heard this. The idea is that at some point in the future, we're going to replace field geologists because they're going to be able to scan every rock that comes out. We're not quite there yet. It's an exciting apparatus and it takes all of our freshly drilled core, takes high resolution photos. It does XRF. It does TerraSpec. It gives you mineral maps. And the idea is then you can put that through some computerized logic and 
It can tell you what the lithology of the core that you've just drilled is. We brought that in last year, right after it's one of the things that Rio really wanted. And so we brought that in last year for the drilling that we did last year. We were so happy with it. This year it's in, we're not doing a lot of drilling this year, but we're actually using it to scan the historical core on the site. And so we've got around 130,000 meters of core. And the goal is to scan as much as we can this year. I think at some point the industry will be doing away with assay labs with a machinery like that. But I understand that it's sort of a requirement that Rio Tinto is gently insisting that you use this equipment so they can look at the rocks. We've got a technical committee that they sit on and there's two people from Western, one person from Rio. We all get along pretty well. It's a big company apparatus a little bit more at this point in time, because you do need to have a team to really sort of pour over the data. Not that we don't have a team, but we certainly don't have a team with the depth of Rio, but it's actually been really useful. I mean, to be honest, I mean, this is still our deposit. Enersoft does all the scanning, Rio's back office does all the analysis, and then we get to look at the final results. So it's actually a win win-win situation. For some reason, I was thinking that Rio Tinto just gave you the money and they're sort of hands-off with regard to the project, but they're really tightly involved with you almost every step of the way at this point. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, on average, on any given week, I'm probably in the order of five hours of meetings with them. And, and that's just me. I mean, the, the people at site are right now, while we have an active campaign, are likely even more. We've got our MET program underway, lots of interest in, in what's happening with Indigenous relations, permitting government relations. It's a very integrated situation right now between ourselves here at Western and with Rio. And, and actually, it's it's been great. It's been a lot of fun. On June 28th, not too long ago, you released a fairly positive feasibility study on the casino project, and I'd like to discuss that and get into it a little bit. How does that affect your relationship with Rio Tinto and the eventual, I'm saying eventual, we don't know, but the eventual acquisition of the casino project and Western Copper and Gold by Rio Tinto if that does in fact happen? First of all, we're very, very happy with the feasibility study. The feasibility study takes the PEA that we developed about a year ago and brings that to a feasibility study level. That's important for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, feasibility study is a feasibility study. It's a significant engineering document. It really establishes without a shadow of a doubt, a feasibility of this project. And it also establishes a quite a significant body of engineering, which is critical for us to bring the project forward into permitting. Very happy that that got done. You look at the results of that, you know, you're 2.3 billion net present value, 18.1% IRR after tax. That was six weeks ago in a better copper market. I just ran the numbers before the call at today's spot prices. It's actually higher even at today's spot prices. And it just shows the resilience of the project. And in terms of our discussions with Rio, this is useful on two parts. First of all, I do want to point out that Rio is very interested in the feasibility study. However, they didn't directly participated. They're a big company. They have their own engineering model in, in the background, which I'm not allowed to see. They're allowed to see ours, of course, because we're a public company. But first of all, it establishes a value. So it establishes a value for the project that certainly helps us at a feasibility level. And that's important, as you mentioned, because hopefully we're going to be sitting down and negotiating with them at one point in the future. The second thing it does is that for other people that are looking at this project, and one of the things that we've been doing here, in addition to developing 
developing a relationship with Rio is just making sure that we're knocking on the doors of other people that might be interested. They're very interested in the feasibility study. Once you get to large mid-tier to major, they're not interested in PEAs. They're not interested in things like that. They want to see a true blue feasibility study with deep engineering in it. That's what we now have. So post-issuance, which is a couple of weeks ago, really what we've been spending the time doing here lately is just running through that feasibility study with the number of parties that we've been talking to for a number of months at this point in time. Everyone's watching the market right now and copper prices have taken a bit of a dip. How does that affect the calculus with regard to negotiations or moving forward? And are we looking at any changes in demand? Has the demand dropped or for some reason copper prices are just going the way of oil and gold right now? There's a couple of things there. I mean, first of all, I was chatting with a major metal trader earlier this week and we kicked off and, you know, it was sort of like, well, you know, what do you think of the copper prices and big eye rolling on the other side? I mean, these are guys that trade copper every day. They look at inventories every day. Their comment to me was there is absolutely no fundamentals behind what we're seeing with the copper price. And I know that. I mean, you look at when markets were calm. When markets were calm two months ago, you had the likes of Goldman Sachs saying copper is going to hit 550. And other people saying, we're going to run out of supply and the LME is going to run out of copper. What's happened in two months? I mean, the Fed moved up an interest rate and everybody lost their head. So, I mean, this is very, very short term. And that's fine because as I said, I mean, even with this short term, movement, a project like ours actually looks really, really good because a bunch of things happen. One is that the price of oil drops. So we did this feasibility study based on Q1 commodity prices. This was a $100 barrel plus oil. Oil prices have dropped now. Project actually likely has lower operating costs. The other thing that happens is the Canadian dollar drops. I mean, we did our feasibility study at an 80 cent dollar. Well, the Canadian dollar today is 76 and a half cents. That's a significant impact on commodity prices. And, and overall costs. So like I said, our project actually looks better today than when we issued the feasibility study. At the, and we used conservative commodity prices when we issued the feasibility study as well. Not worried too much on the impact of that. One thing I can tell you is I'm pretty happy I'm not in the middle of negotiations right now because that would be a bit of a challenge. But looking towards the future, everyone here, I mean, the Rios and others and ourselves, we're long-term thinkers in terms of this. I mean, one of the th- real advantages that we have here at Western is our cash position. We have cash. We expect to be $25 million plus in the bank at the end of the year. We expect to be probably $10, $15 million in the bank at the end of 2023. We're well cashed up. It's a bit of a storm. It's very easy for us to batten down the hatches and move through this. I mean, we're not stopping what we're doing. We're in a very, very strong position from a cash position. We're in a strong position with a strong feasibility study. And we're in a strong position in terms of the relationship we have with Rio and others. So we just keep marching that forward. I see dips in the market like this when we're taking a look at gold or copper or silver or anything like that as a real potential buying opportunity if you pick your spot to come in. Everyone says buy on the dip. Well, we're looking for the dip and I would call this sort of an averaging down situation. I'm a shareholder of the company and why not someone like me taking a large position at a time like this when I think in my heart, I don't know for a fact that you'll eventually be taken out by Rio Tinto or, or anyone and that'll be at a premium to whatever the share price is at that time. I can't really disagree with you. I mean, it's a good opportunity. I mean, Rio Tinto bought their strategic position for $2.17 Canadian, and you know, we're well below that right now. If we're headed into a very significant recession, even if you go back and look at the global financial crisis, the big parts of it were done in a year. And as I said, we're funded through that. 
We've got the relationship with Rio. We've got the strong project. We've got the team built. Everybody, everybody, all smart money in markets like this should be looking for opportunities. There are a ton of opportunities. And what are you looking for in those opportunities? You're looking for people that are going to weather the storm and come out stronger on the other side. And that's exactly what we're positioned for right now. So yeah, that's why we're a great potential investment. Before we wrap this up, Paul, I want to ask you what we can look forward to next. We didn't even talk about our little exploration story, which is this huge anomaly at depth. We sort of drilled into it. I think when you were there, we've got a little bit more drilling in that. We'll have some results of that coming up. Oh, probably in the fall, unfortunately, just the way that assays come. But there was, there's some interesting bits and pieces there. Of course, you know, we'll see where things go with Rio, but we have the arrangement that we have with them. I mean, there is a milestone at the end of November where we're going to have to make some decisions. So we'll have to make some announcement at that point in time and hopefully it's positive if, if not before and yeah those are sort of the key things and then the other big push is work on permitting this is more looking into 2023 but you know as we look into 2023 getting back into the permitting process and and pushing forward on that is going to be another key major major milestone on the project paul it's always a great pleasure to speak with you thanks again for joining me today in the program Always a pleasure talking to you, Alice. I've been speaking with Dr. Paul Wessels, the president and CEO of Western Copper and Gold Corporation. Trading on the New York Stock Exchange and the Toronto Stock Exchange as WRN. Go to the company's website, westerncoppercorp.com. I'm Alice Martin, and I'm an investor with Western Copper and Gold Corporation. Join me now for a conversation with Blaine Monahan, the president and CEO of Pacific Ridge Exploration, trading as PEXZF in the U.S. on the OTC and on the TSX Venture Exchange as P. The company's goal is to become British Columbia's leading copper gold exploration company. Pacific Ridge's flagship project is the Clayhill Copper Gold Project, located in the Quainel Trough, approximately 50 kilometers southeast of Sentara Gold's Kemas Mine. In addition to Clayhill, the company's project portfolio includes the RDP Copper Gold Project, option to Antofagasta Minerals, the Anjo Copper Gold Project, and the Redton Copper Gold Project, all located in British Columbia. Pacific Ridge will continue to search for projects that offer discovery opportunity in their regions of expertise. Blaine, welcome to the program. It's great to visit with you today, my friend. Thank you. Great to be here. If you don't mind, please give us an overview of Pacific Ridge Exploration. Yeah, I think the best way to describe our company is really just an overview of what our corporate objective is, and that is to become BC's leading copper gold exploration company. We have five copper gold projects in BC, and as I said, our goal is to become BC's leading copper gold exploration company. We have an aggressive exploration program underway, and we're looking forward to generating continued positive results for shareholders. You're involved in the Quenel Trough, which seems to be, from what I understand, a very prolific part of BC. And- yeah, the Quenel Trough. Trough is a prolific porphyry district. We're at the northern end of the Cornell Trough, so we're located really just about 50 kilometers south from Santeris Chemist Mine. And at the very southern end, you actually have Kodiak's Gold Project. So it's a very large trend. There are several mines currently in production, and you're right, because it is so prolific, infrastructure is quite good. Weather isn't that much of an issue just because you do have pretty good infrastructure in place. And to be clear, Kodiak is one of our sponsors on this program, and I'm a shareholder in that company, as I am in yours. Excellent. Let's talk about the fundamentals of copper, which is where most of my personal portfolio is weighted right now. I'm not concerned at all with the market. We've had a downtrend recently, but it's a great time to acquire more projects as far as I'm concerned. 
I concur. And, you know, really, as far as the company goes, we came to that determination late in 2019. Up until that point in time, we've been focused more so on early stage gold projects in the Yukon. It was pretty tough to fund early stage gold projects in the Yukon at that time. So we started thinking about, well, is there a different commodity, a different jurisdiction we might be interested in? We had a very bullish outlook on copper. So we started looking for copper projects and we're very familiar with BC. So we came up with the Clio Copper Gold Project in Red which we identified as being very, very attractive. And those two projects were our initial acquisition back January 2020. And at that time, copper was just $2 a pound. So in hindsight, there were great acquisitions. We continue to remain very bullish on the price of copper. Although, like you said, it has come off somewhat, but it's still more than 60% higher than where it was when we first acquired these assets. And we think it's going to go back to its all-time highs, whether this year, next year, or the following. I think we are looking at, with the electrification of society. There are structural deficits. I think copper is going to go a lot higher moving forward. And so I'm very keen on continuing to make good copper acquisitions. So I'm also a shareholder of a company that does business in the Yukon Western Copper and Gold and that particular company and Kodiak. I came in at a much, much higher share price than where your share price is right now. So in my mind, it seems like an even greater opportunity. Not that I don't expect big returns with Western Copper and Gold and Kodiak. I do. But here's a stock that I can own at today's price of what, 34 cents Canadian? Yeah, well, it's very early days for us. I believe Kodiak made their acquisition MPD a little bit before we acquired our Clio. They certainly got in there drilling before we did. I mean, we launched our first ever drill program there last year. So we're only sitting on a few drill holes. But based on the results from last year, we're launching a much bigger drill program this year. We just closed a 7.4 million financing that's going to fund a much bigger program. And if we can continue to deliver similar results as to what we did last year, then I think those sort of gains are achievable. And for your listeners also, I mean, we already have seen tremendous gains. I took over a CEO in January 2020. And at that time, it was a five cent share price and we got as high as 58 and today trading around 35. So we performed very well, but I expect that if we can continue to report positive results, we can surpass again, our old time highs. Blaine, tell us about the share structure of the company. Yeah, it's quite good. Right now, it's about 80 million shares issued. I think there's a good balance between funds and institutions and retail shareholders. So right now, I put funds and institutions at approximately 35%. Our two largest shareholders include Crestcat, a US-based fund out of Denver. They own about 19.9% on a partially diluted basis. And a German fund called Delphi, which owns approximately 14% on a partially diluted basis. And then there's a number of other smaller funds in there from Canada and the States and Europe. Management owns about 7% with the balance being retail. I think it's a good shareholder mix. One thing that I'd be looking for moving forward and, and something I've been very focused on this past while is trying to get a corporate strategic investor. So another senior mining company like a tech or a BHP or a Freeport or even a gold mining company. But I would like to be able to interest one of these senior companies to make an equity investment from 9.9% to 19.9%, not only because that will give us the funds we require to continue to advance the project, but I think it would be a real strong vote of confidence. And ultimately, why we're doing this is to try to make the size or type of discovery that could result in M&A. So I would like to try to attract a strategic investor. 
And I applaud you for putting that into this interview. I think it's really bold and required to state what you want and to ask, because without that, who knows? So we know we have many different sorts of listeners, and and perhaps those conversations will advance due to this particular interview. With that recent financing of $7.4 million, how are you positioned for your exploration development costs going forward for the next year or two? Very well. This year's exploration is fully funded. So as I mentioned earlier, we just launched a 6,000-meter diamond drill program at Clio, which is our flagship. So that 6,000 meters will be about 12 holes. We'll also be doing some earlier stage exploration work at some projects to the south that we feel have excellent potential for porphyry discovery, but they need a little bit more work before they're ready to be drilled. And in addition, we do have a partnership with one of the world's largest senior copper miners, Antofagasta. We optioned a project to them earlier this year, and they'll be funding a 1,500-meter drill program this year, budgeted at $2 million. So all told, we're going to see $8 million in exploration expenditures across every single one of our five projects this year. Well, Blaine, that sounds very, very positive and very encouraging. I love copper. I like what I've seen about your company. I'm an investor in your company, and I appreciate the fact that you're sponsoring our program. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on, and I look forward to being back on your show again sometime soon. I've been speaking with Blaine Monahan, the president and CEO of Pacific Ridge Exploration, trading as PEXZF in the U.S. on the OTC and on the TSX Venture Exchange as PEX. Go to the company's website, PacificRidgeExploration.com. This is the Ellis Martin Report. The global demand for a cleaner, greener future is a goal which Argentina Lithium and Energy Corp trading as LIT on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. on the OTC as PNXLF, believes it can support through exploration for alternative fuel materials. Lithium batteries have become the front-running rechargeable energy storage medium, particularly for the rapidly growing electrical vehicle industry, creating a strong demand forecast for lithium. Argentina comprises a significant portion of the Lithium Triangle, which is home to more than half of the world's resources of lithium. Argentina Lithium and Energy Corp. is a member of the Grosso Group, a resource management team that pioneered the mineral exploration industry in Argentina and has operated there since 1993. The group has made four exceptional metal deposit discoveries and it broadened its focus to include alternative fuels in the mid-2000s. The Grosso Group has been following the lithium battery sector and believes this is the time to expand its efforts in lithium resource development in the highly prospective Argentinian portion of the Lithium Triangle. The Grosso Group leverages its vast network of local, regional, and international industry contacts to support the exploration team in their search for quality resource opportunities. Join me now for a conversation with the company's VP of Exploration, Miles Rideout. Miles, welcome to the program. Great to speak with you today. Thank you very much for the invitation. If you don't mind, give us a background on Argentina Lithium and Energy, part of the Grosso Group. Grosso Group has uranium assets in Argentina and gold and copper assets and silver in various countries. And they've made four important discoveries in Argentina over the last 25 years. Argentina Lithium is the Grosso Group lithium company, obviously. We're active in northeast, so northwestern Argentina in the lithium triangle. So we're focused in the provinces of Salta and also in Catamarca, both pro-mining provinces in Argentina. And we have two 
two primary assets. They are the Rincon West project, where we're actually drilling, and the Antifaya North project, which is about 120 kilometers to the south of the Rincon property. And then we have some other exploration assets. We're building our portfolio and we're drilling our project with a view to taking these through to declared resources, at which point we'll be looking for partnering opportunities to go into production. Please explain to our audience, Miles, why Argentina has some of the best ground for lithium in the world. The lithium triangle is special because it's arid and it's volcanic. And in fact, it's most likely the source magmas that we're describing as volcanic are sourced from the oceanic crust. And if your source magmas come from a crustal source, you have something like a 10 times greater quantity of lithium in your magmas. And what happens is there's no base in the mineral lattice of these magmas for lithium when the lithium cools. It means that the lithium ends up in free outside of the crystal lattice and it's available to be leached over a period of millions of years. The lithium is leached out of these volcanic units. Frequently, these would be ignimbrites, volcanoclastic rock, and uh, deposited in uh, solar basins. Solutions would be concentrated through a process of evaporation and you have a lithium deposit in brines available for extraction using pumping processes. And then there's a variety of different ways you can extract and process lithium for sale. So this sort of high plain arid real estate that we have in Argentina is very attractive as a concentrating mechanism for lithium brines, which we have in our salt flat. And who are the end users for lithium produced in Argentina along with your company? Most likely we're looking at a battery production focused in Asia. There are other players. And so, for instance, there was a major acquisition by Rio Tinto Mining, who acquired a property adjacent to our Rincon West property earlier this year. But I think even when a company like Rio Tinto is producing lithium in future, they will be looking to the Asian market. Well, Rio Tinto is quite active across the sector. And I would say that they would be perhaps someone who would look at your company once you further develop and define your resource. Am I wrong? I would say that that's one of the prospects that we could anticipate. But I also think that there's a huge amount of appetite in other areas for advanced lithium projects. As an example, this would be petroleum companies who are looking to go green, as it were. My feeling with the petroleum companies is that they're looking at the lithium basin or thinking that they have a lot of experience in petroleum basins and might conclude that there's some overlap in terms of familiarity and technology which could be applied. What is interesting is the petroleum companies have deep pockets and they're becoming very interested in the lithium sector. I think that we'll be seeing generally, especially in Argentina, I think that we'll be seeing petroleum companies getting very involved in the lithium space. So this is sort of a new focus for petroleum companies across the board. They've got to change along with the political and environmental times, and a smart move for them would be to put their billions and billions of dollars into the lithium space. I'm in favor of the production of fossil fuels, and I think that we're looking at a transition period, which is going to take potentially decades, but we're certainly on the upslope towards green technologies. And I think the world's focus has been on generating green energy. We haven't seen that much focus yet on energy storage on the electricity grid. So that's going to be a huge market. And I think that the drilling companies are looking for markets like that, really substantial markets where the lithium consumption will be well much greater than it is today, for instance. You have a very long history in Argentina in other metals and minerals, for instance. What brought you to this particular group, this company, these projects? I'm an exploration geophysicist.
because I grew up in Canada and I was trained in Canada. I've worked in Latin America now, coming up on 35 years, I think. And a lot of that time has been in the gold and copper, silver space. I've been working as a consultant or a contractor with the Grosso Group since about 1998. In that case, mostly focused on applications of geophysics to their project. I was doing work with the Grosso Group last year in unrelated areas, and they proposed that I join their lithium group. I had been working with other lithium companies. I've done a lot of consulting on lithium projects in the past as well. I was the exploration manager for another lithium company prior to this. So the Grosso Group thought it would be a good fit. I thought it would be a good fit. I've always enjoyed working with the Grosso people. And what attracts me there is they identify excellent projects and take them forward efficiently. Uh, they're very pleasant people to work with, very friendly. And I also like groups which are expert at their jobs. And that describes the Grosso Group. Can you give us an idea of the share structure of Argentina lithium and energy? We have 74 million shares outstanding, and there's just less than 20 million warrants outstanding with an average price of 54%. Fully diluted, currently we stand at 97.6 million shares. Well, I would encourage our listeners to take a look at the latest news release dated July 21st, 2022, and it's on the website of the company, argentinalithium.com. I've been speaking with Miles Rideout, the VP of Exploration for Argentina Lithium and Energy trading as LIT on the TSX Venture Exchange and PNXLF on the OTC in the U.S. Find them at argentinalithium.com. This is the Ellis Martin Report. Join me for a conversation with Michael Townsend, Director, and Zane Callian, CEO of Infinity Stone Ventures, trading on the CSE as GEMS, that's G-E-M-S, and in the U.S. on the OTC as T-L-O-O-F. Infinity Stone's mission is to be a one-stop shop, single sources supplier for the critical energy metals being used in the clean energy revolution. Infinity Stone is meeting the demand from battery and wind turbine manufacturers, nuclear and hydrogen energy energy producers, and energy metal speculators by acquiring majority interest in critical minerals projects in stable mining-friendly jurisdictions, close to final-use destinations in North American manufacturing hubs. With six projects in mining-friendly jurisdictions, such as Quebec and Ontario, Infinity Stone's portfolio includes lithium, graphite, copper, gold, platinum, and palladium. Michael, Zane, welcome to the program. Great to have you with us today. Dallas, thanks for having us. Really appreciate yeah. uh, being here. Thanks, Alice, for having us. Now, Michael, you and I have been friends probably almost 25 years. Let's talk about your history in the business and why Infinity Stone is a really exciting project at this time. Right. Well, I didn't, is it been, are we that old, Alice? I didn't realize. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I've been in the business since 1995. And those were very exciting times. We had Diamet Minerals, which was a big diamond discovery in Canada. I think that stock went to 60 dollars a share. And then we had, of course, the Diamond Fields discovery. They were looking for diamonds in Canada, and they found one of the largest copper, nickel, cobalt discoveries in the world. And that stock, I think, went to $160 a share. So no doubt that I had discovered that that's the business I wanted to be in. And uh, yeah, I've been in it ever since. Of course, we did some dot-com things in the 2000s, but during the resource boom or the commodity super cycle from 2001 to 2011-12, we had several junior mining companies, started with Latigo Gold, West Hawk Development, which was coal, and that did very well. Then we did another company. It's now on the Toronto Stock Exchange called Niocorp. It's the second largest rare earth deposit in North America, in Nebraska. And then we capped it all off with a big potash discovery in Saskatchewan. And then the sort of the wheels came off. China started slowing down and we had the Lehman moment and 
So we haven't been doing a lot in the mining industry since probably 2011, but it's certainly coming back strong now, especially with the battery metals being so short in supply. Well, you have six or seven projects now in Ontario and Quebec, copper, gold, palladium, graphite, lithium, a big one. So much going on in the battery metal space. It looks like you, you've got a great play in, in very friendly mining districts. Let's talk about the, the passion behind the deal here. Great. Okay, well, I'll take that one and then Zane can fill in the blanks where I've left out the details. But, you know, the, the thinking was that we wanted to be in good jurisdictions in Canada. The Canadian dollar is 75 cents versus the U.S. dollar. Well, U.S. dollar 75 cents to buy one Canadian dollar. So, you know, much less expensive to explore, much less expensive to acquire projects. And then you go to provinces like Quebec and Ontario. They're super mining friendly, you know, maybe rated top between the two of them. I don't know. Quebec's probably number four in the world. And maybe Ontario is definitely in the top 10 best mining jurisdictions in the world. There's new mines opening there all the time. And then on top of that, you're right in the Great Lakes region where you have all kinds of manufacturing. In Canada, we make a lot of cars that get shipped into the United States. I, I don't know how many millions, but quite a few. And there's been some big announcements of big battery plants to be built in Windsor, Ontario. There's new car facilities, electric car facilities being built there. And then of course you're on the Great Lakes, so you can just ship easily these materials to Detroit or Michigan or Ohio or wherever you need to ship them. So we have excellent infrastructure, excellent locations. And then the materials that we're looking for, a lot of other companies have had a lot of success sort of stock market wise. Lithium has been a big boon for a lot of companies. A lot of my friends, I've been involved, lucky to be shareholders of some companies that have gone from 20 cents to one recently to $4, Patriot Battery Metals. So that was kind of our impetus to get into the game and especially in Quebec. Maybe we'll let Zane talk about some of the first projects that we did acquire, which were actually in Ontario. And then we subsequently have acquired a couple in, in Quebec. Thanks for that, Michael. We really did start by focusing on Ontario. Originally, it was a lithium property adjacent to a company called Frontier Lithium. Their map pegmatites that the Ontario Geologic Survey had mapped in the mid-century. We were able to kind of identify them and they're directly adjacent to Frontier's claims. So that was particularly exciting to us and that we were kind of tagging on to that. They've had a significant discovery and their stock has really seen a lot of creative value produced over the past, call it three, four or five months. Yeah, I think the value of that company got up to $600 million right around when we acquired these projects beside them. I think they're still somewhere in the three or $400 million valuation. So significant valuation. You get a couple of good drill holes in one of these LCT pegmatites and the market stands up and listens. The Chinese have been buying just the concentrate. You don't even have to build a mill. I mean, you have to concentrate it, but you concentrate these spodumene pegmatites six to one. They, they want a 6% concentrate. So generally speaking, these pegmatites run around 1%. So we concentrate them with a dense media separator or, a, you know, a falcon concentrator and you get it to 6% and the Chinese will buy that just the concentrate. The highest it's going is like $7,000 a ton right now. It started like around 2,500. There's actually an auction process and you can auction your spodumene concentrate and it's going for $7,000 a ton right now. You can believe it. So you're talking about the Buddha pegmatite lithium project primarily, right? That's the one that we're working on right now is the Buddha. We've had boots on the ground there since probably middle of June. We're expecting assay results imminently. And that one had been explored before uh, for fluorospar. And what the takeaway was back 40 or 50 years ago was that there was enough ore there. They were big pegmatites and they were uh, homogenous. The mineralization was evenly distributed and they were going to be economic for fluorospar. Fluorospar, I think, is used for making glass, etc. Of course, we're not interested in fluorospar. It'd be a nice byproduct, potentially. There's also very high rubidium grades 
And rubidium is not a common uh, mineral, but it's, it's expensive. I think it goes for $100,000 a kilogram. And it's used in these new batteries. Uh, what are they called, uh, Zane? The um, sodium ion batteries. Sodium ion batteries, which is good. They're actually getting a lot of play right now. And uh, so we have a couple of interesting things there. We, we don't know what uh, grade the lithium is yet or the tantalum. And again, tantalum is another mineral that's getting a lot of attention lately. I think it trades for, you know, it's like $40,000, $50,000 a ton. So any day we should get some assays off that property. So pretty excited. You can't have a lithium ion battery without graphite and you've got a graphite project. Some companies just have a graphite project and that's their whole company, but you have the Rockstone graphite project and you've, you've seen 25% grade over 24 meters. Is that right? That's correct. And that, that's very high grade, or I call it the top quartile of world graphite grades. And so is the Buddha. They're right on the highways. Um, Zane probably knows exactly which highways since we're originally from Ontario. One of them is at the intersection of two highways. So, I mean, what that means is people that are doing exploration work can drive there in the morning from Thunder Bay. It's 50 kilometers. They, their coffee's still warm when they get to the property. We don't have to feed them. We don't have to build a camp. There's no helicopters. All that is saves money. The more money we save on, on that, the more money we can put into the ground. Zane's going to tell you what's most exciting about that graphite project is that it's, it's morphology. He knows that story better than I do. The reason that we originally actually started to focus on the graphite property and we optioned it was really around the idea that lithium is, in most cases, the cathode in almost all EV batteries and, and other kinds of new battery technology that's out there. But in almost all cases, no matter what kind of battery chemistry you're talking about, the anode is graphite. And we just see that the next trend with lithium running so much and still kind of retaining a lot of its value and a lot of its price as its price appreciation over the past couple of years, we see a lot of opportunity with graphite kind of being the next thing and the next focus as an EV mineral. So as Michael said, the most exciting thing about our graphite property is its morphology. So that's really the structure of the graphite. So it's not this large flake graphite where it's more spherical. And what you really need is that spherical shape to be able to pack as much graphite as you can into a dense battery. So that's probably the most exciting piece. And second to that, we've actually refined the graphite already to 96.1% with SGS Labs, which is one of the leading metallurgy labs in the world. And then we've, we're currently in the process of further refining that to 99.8%. And we have no reason to believe that we won't be able to get there. It's all just about time and effort and, and investment money. and money. And when we get to that 99.8%, we can really certify our graphite as battery grade, which just really increases the, the market value of the product and makes the economics very viable for our project. What I'd add in there, currently, most of the graphite that's used in EV batteries in the world comes from China and most of it is synthetic. And the problem with that is it takes a lot of energy to make synthetic graphite. They burn coal, they need a lot of heat, and a lot of pressure to make synthetic graphite. So the fact that we use natural graphite, uh, not only does it save a lot of money, it saves a lot of carbon footprint. So what you'll see is in a lot of these companies that sort of the Western style companies is that we're all conscious and worried about our carbon footprint. So if we can produce these metals that we need for these EVs with a very low carbon footprint, they're going to be a lot more attractive to the ultimate end user automobile manufacturers. That's a big angle for us as well. And of course, we have so much hydropower in Quebec and Ontario that, that we'll be able to run these plants and run these processes with very low or zero carbon hydropower, electric power. So those are other things that are important. Does that mean you're going to be building a mine? It's a good question. These are fairly easy mines to build. I think if you said we were had a big giant copper, copper molly mine, or maybe even a big gold discovery, it'd probably be, you know, sell it to a barrack or a, a mid-tier. But these are fairly easy mines. They're, they're more like quarries, really, you know, so you're, they're open pit, both the graphite and 
and the Buddha uh, pegmentite sticks out of the ground. <laughs> so, you know, there's no going underground. You're going above ground and then the graphite is at surface. So these are, they're more like quarries. So it's a big pit, you, you mine it, and then you just concentrate it. So you don't, you don't have flotation, you don't have all these uh, cells and jaw crushers and ball mills and all these things you need. So I think it's very possible that we could be quarrying it and sending it 50 kilometers to Thunder Bay, which is a big mining center. And there's also been a big discussion about them building a big uh, lithium concentration plant or lithium processing plant in Thunder Bay with the support of our government and the support of a foreign government. So... Lots of opportunities to go left or right. And Quebec is very generous with regard to kickbacks when you're, you've got a project in the province, correct? Can you imagine? I mean, it, it doesn't get any better. You, you spend a million dollars on the ground. The government of Canada will give the investor on that million dollars spent, they'll give them a what, 30% tax break. And then the million dollars you spend it on the ground, the government of Quebec will give you 38% back. So we get a $380,000 check back in hard dollars that you can use to operate the business versus put the money in the ground. There's a lot of great tax incentives to explore and develop projects in Canada. There's a big supply crunch, especially in North America, and it's at a critical point for these critical metals. And you are certainly positioned to help relieve some of the pressure on that supply chain, although I don't know that it's going to be relieved anytime soon with the push for EVs in this country and in Canada as well. Obviously, the Chinese are continuing to supply the automobile manufacturers, the OEMs in, in North America, but it's not really a good policy as the, the Germans have recently figured out that it's not maybe a good idea to get all your energy from one place that could potentially be an enemy. So I just don't think it's a great policy to get all your inputs from China. So I think the risk is maybe not imminent, but it's certainly possible. And so there is a lot of money that is going into North American supply chains to bring these metals in again back to that carbon footprint. Some of these, like there's a graphite mine, I would say one of our competitors, Elon Musk and Tesla's buying their graphite from a company called Syrah Resources. And Syrah mine is in Mozambique in Africa. So not only do they have to transport that product, heavy, raw material, 8,000 miles. I mean, uh, I don't know exactly, but the carbon footprint on that transportation is massive and the expense is massive. Obviously, that's probably cheaper to mine it in Mozambique. But then recently, the Mozambique, they had security issues. They had the uprising and, and, and those are going to happen more and more. Sri Lanka, I'm hearing Panama, Peru, the people are uprising and they're going to be burning down the bridges and they're not going to want to see their minerals leaving the country, their foods leaving the country, their their gas and oils leaving the country. So ultimately the world where it was a globalization, it's now coming in reverse. Globalization is reversing and we're localizing. That's saving us a big carbon footprint. Yeah, that's where I'm at with that. So Canada really is one of the best, if not the best jurisdiction for mining in the world, especially Eastern Canada with provinces like Ontario and Quebec, right, Zane? Correct. Yeah. The Fraser Institute actually ranks Quebec as number six in the world as a mining jurisdiction. And, and as Michael touched upon, there, there really is a lot of incentive um, to operating in the province and it, it's a lot cheaper than the rest of Canada. It's one of the cheapest in North America as a developed jurisdiction. So we really are putting a lot of focus on being Quebec. We're, we're very polite in Canada as well. It is my favorite based on courtesy and politeness. What have we got coming up in the next six to 12 months and how are you financed to take care of your exploration and development needs? 
Well, good question. It's sort of early days for our company, so we haven't raised that much money already. We did raise a couple million dollars uh, last year in 2021. We haven't been raising money currently, and uh, we just turned down some money. We got an offer of uh, $800,000 for expiration recently in the last 10 days, but we weren't comfortable with the terms of the money. So we turned that money down and we're in discussions with another banker out of Toronto that is pretty confident that they can get us better terms on, on the same amount amount or more money. You know, the stock's fairly inexpensive or trading lower than we would like it to. So we're not planning on diluting too much down here. Ellis, we, you know, we think that the market's turning here. We found a bottom in the juniors resource market. And I've been doing this for 25 years. Uh, this is the bottom seasonally. The smart money starts coming in in August and it's all game on September, October, November, January, February. And then it starts to get quiet again in March. So we're at the bottom of the cycle. So we're just going to raise as little money as we need. And again, because we're operating near roads, because we're operating in Canada, in Quebec, the price of real estate is about a quarter of BC, which would be about a quarter or a fifth of California where you are. So when it costs, you know, a house is 200 grand, 300 grand, and everything's cheaper, all that reflects down the line. So we're only paying like $100 a meter for drilling costs in Quebec. So we just don't need that much money. Yeah, you drive right up. I mean, I, I call them wheelchair accessible, these properties. <laughs> that is hilarious, actually. I don't know if it's politically correct, but it is funny. And I know that drilling costs can be upwards of two to three to $400 a meter. If you had helicopters in BC, all these mines that you hear about, they're all on the side of a mountain. So there's no roads anywhere near them. So you got to find a base camp, but you got to, then you got to helicopter all your fuel in. These helicopters burn a lot of fuel. And then you, you're up and down. You got to take the drillers literally from the camp vertical to the, to the drill that's mounted on the side of a mountain. So th those can get up in the $900, $1,000 a foot. And then you got to helicopter all the core off the side of the mountain. So operating near infrastructure, near roads, near towns, near, uh, I mean, one of our properties is in Warbury. We haven't talked about it. It's a copper cobalt property in Quebec. It has 800 volt power lines that, that pretty much go right over top of it. So those are the kind of things that we look for, or tidewater is key too. If you can be right on tidewater, I mean, the Chinese guys can pull up in their ships and we just convey it onto their ships and away it goes. I like a company that has more than one project in their portfolio. It gives investors a chance to absorb less risk. Our thinking is that it's hard to predict which commodity is going to be the hot one that particular quarter. Copper had a fantastic run the first half of this year, but it's kind of gone quiet in the last couple of months. Lithium has held in really, really well. Graphite, you don't hear about it a lot, but some graphite stocks have been doing very well. But I think what the latest and greatest metal these days is, is everyone's talking about is manganese because uh, Volkswagen and Tesla are now using, testing, using, well, Volkswagen's using, Tesla's using both. They're using manganese instead of cobalt in the cathode. And that's got people pretty fired up on manganese. So of course we're beating the bushes literally for a manganese property. And uh, there's a couple that are looking pretty good to us right now. Let us know when you find one. I'm sure your shareholders and potential shareholders listening to this program would like to hear all about that. It's been exciting. Zane, you talk too much. <laughs> yeah. He's going to tell you about why this, we need six stones and then we control the universe. Okay, go ahead. I'm all ears. Yeah, so the genesis of the name really was focused around, as Michael said, around the six stones. Um, really, the idea is that if you control the six stones, you control the universe. And we want to be a diversified company that's developing and delivering energy metals to the market, especially in a macroeconomic climate where they're going to be critical. And beyond that, doing it with a supply chain that's located in North America and developed markets. I think we've seen that the world and the macroeconomic climate right now are a little bit in turmoil. And there's a massive 
massive shift away from globalized markets to really looking at building supply chains closer to consumption. We're really focused on that and, and delivering these six stones. Yeah. And the other reason we called it Infinity Stone is because uh, Tesla Metals was already taken. <laughs> <laughs> Zane Kelly and Michael Townsend, my old friend, great to chat with you today in the program. I wish you all the best. I'll be talking to you very soon, I imagine. Thank you. Yeah. Look forward to it. Thanks, Alex. I've been speaking with Michael Townsend, director, and Zane Kalyan, CEO of Infinity Stone Ventures, trading on the CSE as G-E-M-S and in the U.S. on the OTC as T-L-O-O-F. Go to the company's website now and download their investor presentation, infinitystone.ventures. That's infinitystone.ventures. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Michael Rowley, the president and CEO of Stillwater Critical Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as PGE, in the U.S. on the OTCQB as PGEZF, and in Frankfurt as 5D32. Stillwater Critical Minerals is a mineral exploration company focused on the development of high-quality platinum, palladium, nickel, copper, cobalt, and gold exploration assets in top North American mining jurisdictions. The company's core asset is the Stillwater West Project adjacent to Sabanier Stillwater's high-grade PGE mines in Montana. Stillwater Critical Minerals also holds the high-grade Black Lake Drayton Gold Project adjacent to Treasury Metals Development Stage Goliath Gold Complex in Northwest Ontario and the Cluane PGE Nickel Copper Cobalt Project on trend with Nickel Creek Platinum's Well Green Deposit in Canada's Yukon Territory. Michael Rowley has over 25 years executive experience in the exploration, mineral testing, and mine environmental industries, including capital markets and operations. One of Stillwater Critical Minerals' founding shareholders and directors, Mr. Rowley is active in additional publicly traded companies, including fellow Metallic Group member Granite Creek Copper. Michael, welcome back to the program. Nice to be chatting with you today. Thank you, Ellis. Nice to be back. You've brought me a surprise, your new VP of Exploration, Daniel Grobler. Welcome to Stillwater Critical Minerals, and welcome to the program, Daniel. Thank you very much, Ellis. Appreciate it. Tell us about your background. You've got some very strong credentials, starting with Ivanhoe. Yes. Look, I've been on the Platte Drift Project for Ivanhoe Mines. The South African entity is called Ivan Platts, B2I Limited. I've been basically on that project project since 2011 and was part of the geology team that drilled out the resource for that mine that's being built now. So Michael, you are very, very serious about your management team here and your VP of exploration. Planning ahead for this project, you wanted somebody with some very strong credentials, like I said, to help bring you forward and process all the data you're going to be compiling. Well, that's exactly it. And the team that we have prior to Danny and Albi, their addition was steeped with decades of stormwater experience. And that's, of course, excellent and complimentary to what these fellows are bringing to the table. We've been clear about our Platte Reef ambitions from day one, and that has only gotten stronger the more we've gotten into the project. It's the absolute best time to bring these guys in to take the project where we think it can go next, which is large-scale, bulk-mineable nickel, copper, sulfides with PGEs in Montana, in our case, and not in South Africa. And to prove that really the market these days likes to see high-grade resource expansion and mineralization, you're doing that consistently, We've done that across nine kilometers in the core of that 32 kilometer claim block. This is in the Pritatite zone is the technical term. And as you saw in our most recent news release on July 7th, we've done that again at the HGR deposit area, one of five deposits that we modeled up last year. We delivered some very nice step out holes, hundreds of meters to the south of the deposit area. And that's, of course, all aiming to a healthy resource expansion planned for later this year. 
I've sat on a few critical mineral panels around the world during the past few months, and I can't stress enough to our audience the importance of minerals and metals such as nickel, copper, cobalt, palladium, platinum. It's huge if we're going to continue to expand our capacity to take care of the demand for battery metals and energy. That's exactly right. And high grade in a producing districts in America, in the US, that's exactly what we're about. We're effectively bringing the third wave of critical mineral supply to the Stillwater District. It produced chromium during the war years. It produced PGEs starting in 86 and ramping up ever since. And now we're adding more nickel, copper, and cobalt, really, to the mix than our neighbor Sabanier has been doing since 1986. So there's really nothing greenfield or novel about this, is there? No, that's exactly right. These rocks are known worldwide. That's how we were able to get Danny and Albie's attention. It is one of the best complexes in the world for these types of systems, and it has great potential to be a significant producer for America's needs of exactly the critical minerals that you mentioned. So Danny, what was the biggest thing about this project that excited you enough to come and work on it with Michael? We really looked at the database carefully before we made our decision. And we're seeing significant parallels between what we worked on that is called the Black Reef in South Africa with huge economic importance and what we're seeing in the geology of this project. And there's really good parallels that we're seeing. The rock types that we've been able now to look at shows us significant comparison between the reef type of the Black Reef in South Africa. And everything just looks very similar to us. And we're really excited and keen to bring this level of expertise from South Africa into the Stillwater District and see what we can do about that. So what's the next step for both of you in Montana now? So it's important for us to be on the project and really take a careful look at the geology. And so one of the important things we would like to do is to look at the structural geology because that's really important and also the stratigraphic interpretations that have been made on these projects. You need the structure and you need to understand the stratigraphy to be able to look at these reefs and get continuity on your drilling and be able to declare resources. So the company's been on that for a while now and there's significant resource already declared. So we would like to expand on that. That's, that will be our main focus uh, for the short-term future. Fantastic. Michael, I just spent a week recently with a friend of yours, a mutual friend, Byron King, who took an early interest in your project in Montana. He's very excited about that and I expect to speak with him about it soon. How does that relationship start? Yeah, Byron is an excellent friend of the project. He has indeed been on site and even at a relatively early point, we couldn't have planned it better because we happened to drill some really lovely looking sulfides at the camp zone, the CZ deposit area, just as he arrived, <laughs> which was brilliant. Yeah, he's a well-known newsletter writer, of course, Whiskey and Gunpowder. And that was the initial connection. We offered him a visit to site that fall and he came through and the trip went very well. We've been friends ever since. He's a big fan of the project and of critical mineral supply in the US. And he sees what we see as the world-class potential here for scale grade in an American producing district. What would you say to listeners right now that might be scared off about the market in general, the commodities market in general? What would you say to them right now with regard to potentially getting involved with Stillwater Critical Minerals? Well, I think we tick all the boxes in terms of building a world-class project in a district where you can actually advance a project. These are scary times in terms of the overall market, the volatility, but we're extremely oversold. In fact, a bunch of quality junior exploration stocks are. We never had the lift that the majors saw and that the underlying commodities saw. Historically, that's always corrected in the market. The juniors always follow the majors up. What we've got is some short-term noise before we get there, but that has only created a really good buying opportunity. 
It's obviously risky. Junior mining investment is never without risk. But as you've seen, I'm myself buying in the market right now. I believe this is at or near bottom. And I think there's terrific upside from here as markets turn and as all quality juniors follow the majors up in value. Well, Michael Rowley, President, CEO of Stillwater Critical Minerals, and Daniel Grobler, the new VP of Exploration. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. I look forward to more conversations in the future. Thank you, Ellis. Thank you. I've been speaking with Michael Rowley, the President and CEO of Stillwater Critical Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as PGE, in the U.S. on the OTCQB as PGEZF, and in Frankfurt as 5D32. Find the company online at criticalminerals.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Meanwhile, subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit ellismartinreport.com. Do it now. See you next time.